Greetings, folks. Got a few minutes. In just a moment, we're going to go to Psalm 16, and that's where we'll be spending most of our time today. We'll give it a couple of minutes for people who are still waiting for 1115, which is the designated time. Greetings, everybody. My name is Larry Price. We're going to be looking today into Psalm 16. Glad to be able to come to you through this venue. Thankful for the invitation and the opportunity that the Lord has provided us in these difficult days in which we find ourselves living. These are challenging times, but God is able. And today is a day, you know, that every day is a resurrection day for believers in Christ. But today is a day, particularly when we think of Christ triumphant over the grave and death and hell, and sin, and he sits on a throne in heaven. I always remind myself that one of the first things that John saw in the book of Revelation was a throne, and it says that one sat upon the throne, an occupied throne, and that throne is occupied today. So we're going to begin by uh, opening in a word of prayer, and if you have a Bible and want to follow along, you'll want to get uh, your Bible and open up to the book of Psalms, particularly Psalm 16. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have now to open your word, and we ask you to bless this time together that we have as we look into the truth of the scriptures and as we see there things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and as we make application there of things pertaining to our lives as well. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Psalm 16 is a relatively short psalm. It's only it's only 11 verses, so I'll begin by reading all 11 verses. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. 
Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so um, Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. And what is meant by the term messianic psalm, uh, although many of the psalms in one way or another uh, give us portraits of Jesus Christ, that is, before he came to earth, uh, prophetically speak of him in various ways, there are certain psalms that are classified as messianic because they are either quoted by the Lord Jesus himself when he was here on earth, or they're quoted by the apostles or the writers of the New Testament uh, in reference to the Lord Jesus. And as we're going to see, this is one of those psalms that in the New Testament, it plays a very powerful role. But I'd like to look at this psalm not just from the prophetic aspect, but the practical aspect as well. So what I'm going to do is break it into two sections, if you will, or two parts to this message. One, the practical first, and then second, the prophetic. The practical begins with the first words of this psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. One of the translations reads this. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. What could be more apropos and appropriate in the time in which we find ourselves living today with the COVID-19 and coronavirus and economic difficulty all around us, what could be more appropriate than the very first words of the psalmist, of David at this point, but of the Spirit of God to us through this? Lord, you keep me safe. You know, it's important that we have safe practices. We hear a whole new vocabulary today, shelter, in place, self-quarantine, social distancing, wash your hands, all of those things, important as they are, ultimately, where is our trust placed? We can do all of those things and or none of them, but ultimately, our trust must be focused in the Lord. It is he who will keep us safe. It is he who will preserve us. So it's an excellent thing to begin with, isn't it, by asking ourselves the question, where is my trust placed? Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. I'd like to just point out a few things in this psalm before we get into it in detail. Just think of these words and concepts, and we'll perhaps look at them a bit more in depth as we move along. Trust. That's found in verse 1. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord. Verse 9, hope. And boy, we sure need hope today, don't we? Verse 11, at thy right hand, pleasures forevermore, fullness of joy. So let's begin to think through this psalm, as I said, first of all, in a very practical sense. Verse 2 says, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. The idea behind this phrase that's used here is, I have no good but you, Lord. Now, we understand, and the Lord Jesus said when he was here on this planet, that ultimately, in the ultimate sense, there's none good 
but one, and that is God. Ultimately, in that ultimate sense, he's the only one who is good. Any goodness I have, Lord, is found in you. And it's a wonderful thing to think, too, isn't it, that in the New Testament sense, according to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, that Christ was made sin or a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that he provides for us that righteousness that makes us acceptable in his sight when we trust the Lord Jesus as Savior. You'll see a contrast between those that are called in verse 3, the saints that are in the earth, the excellent, and those who chase after other gods in verse 4. It's a contrast there between those two. Each one, in a sense, has a part. Each one has an end. Each one has a portion. We'll move in just a moment to look a little bit further at the concept that's brought out uh, in verse 5 and 6, particularly about the inheritance. But when we think of inheritance, you know, I've seen people in this world and in this life, family members even, that were so very close, come apart, fall out, never speak to one another again, scrapping and scraping over earthly inheritance, over money and things like that. And the world in general seeks to put together for themselves some sort of heritage, some sort of inheritance. But what a difference we'll see the contrast in the inheritance that the believer in Christ has. It's a wonderful thing. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. And of my cup, thou maintainest my lot. Now, we'll begin to look at this, as I said, a bit more in depth, but I want you just to think about how wealthy, if you're a believer, you really are. You see, David ultimately is going to see beyond a simple land inheritance, if you will, as important as that was. He's going to see something that's even deeper here, that behind that land inheritance that he references stood the Lord himself, who was David's portion. And you think of you and I, again, appropriate verses. I want to turn to 1 Peter in chapter 1, and I want to read there from verse 3. And listen to these words, or follow along if you have your Bible with you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What an inheritance we have been brought into as believers in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, and to make an application, doesn't he? wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, like the temporary time we find ourselves living in now, so restrictive, if need be, that is, if God deems it necessary, you are in heaviness through manifold various types of trials and difficulties and temptations. We have an inheritance that Peter reminds us here uh, that is incorruptible, 
undefiled, doesn't fade away, never rusts, never deteriorates, never diminishes, and it's kept by the power of God. We're kept by the power of God. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. I want to tell you, if you're a believer in Christ, you might be as poor as a church mouse, as the statement goes sometimes, as the old saying goes. But the poorest believer in Christ, as far as wealth in this world is concerned, is far richer than the the greatest billionaire on this planet. You don't see your inheritance yet. But one day, that inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you and me, well, we're going to enter into all the fullness of that. And what a wonderful thing it'll be. And in that day, you'll be so, so glad that your inheritance was reserved in heaven for you because everything in this world is going to be burned up. It's going to be gone. Now, if you don't have that kind of hope, you can have it today. You can come to Jesus Christ, confess that you're a sinner, realize that what he did on the cross he did for you, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can be saved, and you'll enter into an inheritance that we have as believers. What Ephesians chapter 1 calls all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a tremendous, tremendous thing that we've been brought into. Let's look a bit further here in the practical sense of Psalm 16, going back now to what David says. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. It's the Lord who's the portion of mine inheritance. And if that's your portion, well, how incredibly wealthy you are. You know, there was a man who lived in the 1400s. His name was Savonarola. And he was, he was hanged and burned as a heretic because he proclaimed uh, the true gospel. But he had this quote. Listen to this. What must not he possess who possesses the possessor of all? What must not he possess who possesses the possessor of all? The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. There's a psalm uh, in Psalm 78 that I'd like to turn to to cross-reference something that is found here in uh, Psalm 16. And it's verse 55. It says, He cast out the heathen also before them, and divided them an inheritance by line, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. What I'd like to do next is to look at something that the Lord has given us in the Old Testament, in the real history of the nation of Israel, that we can use, sort of like David here, as a thought model to think about higher concepts. Remember, the inheritance in in the days of Israel's coming into the land of Canaan was a physical piece of land. It was divided by lines. So to get that fixed in our mind a bit better, let's turn back to the book of Joshua, first to chapter 13, Joshua chapter 13. And I will read from Joshua chapter 13 in verse 6. 
all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon unto Misripothmaim and all the Sidonians, then will I drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide thou it by lot unto the Israelites for an inheritance as I have commanded thee. Divide thou it by lot. In Joshua chapter 14, in verse 2, by lot was their inheritance as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. And then turn to chapter 18. Now, by the time you get to chapter 18 in the history of the conquest of the land of Canaan, the land had been sufficiently subdued. There was a relative peace enough established so that they could set up the house of the Lord, the house of God in the Old Testament, which was the tabernacle set up there at Shiloh. And at this stage, they now come before the Lord and before his house and his presence to have the lots determined for them. Notice verse 4. Give out from among you three men for each tribe. I will send them. They shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them, and they shall come again to me. And then verse 8. The men arose and went away, and Joshua charged them that went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it, and come again to me that I may hear cast lots for you before the Lord in Shiloh. They were to go and to describe the land. Now, a good many of you that are listening in or watching this morning will remember that I spent some time at Camp Horizon a number of years ago. I won't go into the whole history, but some of you will remember that there was an issue of title uh, as to who owned the old railroad bed property that ran uh, parallel and adjacent to the lake. And during my tenure there, <laughs> no pun intended, but the lot fell upon me to go to the public records in downtown Tavares and research old deeds and property descriptions to try to ascertain who held the title to the railroad bed property. I could have spent weeks in there, but I didn't. Uh, there were very old records, some of them written handwritten, some were on old microfiche, but it was fascinating to read some of them uh, because they describe the land in the terminology that would have been used of that day. Go down by the old oak tree that's by the creek on, on the southeast corner and go a 100 yards until you come to the, the willow tree or whatever it was. That was describing the land. Later, um, even in the early days that uh, that I can remember, before the day of lasers like, like uh, surveyors use now, they used to do what they were called pulling a chain. So you either had a long tape measure or an actual physical chain back in the day, and you would go out and you would describe the land. In other words, you would section the land off. We still use that sort of terminology today. If you build a house, you must have a lot, and your lot will have a description. So many feet on this side, so many feet on that side, and so on. And so the lot in the day of Joshua's time was a piece of land. The surveyors went out and described the land, sectioned it off, 
And then the various people in the tribes, by method of the casting of the lot, received their portion or their inheritance. Now, we're not sure what that method was, you know, whether it was drawing a short stick or some kind of rolling of dice or we don't really know. But the chief idea behind this division of the land by the casting of the lots, the chief idea behind it is it was not man's choosing. It was some method that was used to determine God's will. So that the piece of land you got as an Israelite wasn't by self-choosing necessarily. It was by God's will and how that was determined. Now think about that concept for a moment. Imagine that you would have gotten a piece of land that was, you know, beautiful pasture land, very easy to farm, highly productive. You know, it had a flowing stream through it. Uh, it was good for cattle, and I mean, you'd go your way praising the Lord and how wonderful your inheritance was. On the other hand, not all the land was like that. And you might have gotten a piece of land that was rocky, difficult to farm, arid, but no water around. Some people got property. There were still giants dwelling around those parts in that day. Others had property that was close to where enemy forces would still come in and invade the territory. The point is, whatever piece of land you got, that was your inheritance. That was from the Lord. And that's what God had given you. And you were expected to develop that inheritance. Now, God would not expect of the person with the rocky ground to produce as much as the person with the beautiful pasture land ground. God would expect from each, though, to develop that inheritance, whatever had been given to them, to the best of the ability that they had. And you and I have been given an inheritance in that sense. You know, this type of language even is still used in our, in our language today. People will sometimes say, you know, that was his lot in life. That was her lot in life. What is it that you and I have been given by God as an inheritance? Our talents, our treasures, our abilities, our resources. God will not expect the same thing from you that he expects from me. And thankfully, he won't expect the same thing from me that he might expect from you. But he will expect from each of us to develop whatever has been given us to the best of our ability as believers in Christ by the grace of God and with his help. Now, by the time you get into David's time, he then takes this concept of the lot and elevates it to another place altogether. The lines, he says, have fallen unto me in pleasant places. What lines? Well, initially, remember that it would have been the surveyor's lines, how the land was divided up. David now uses it to speak of his life. You mean to tell me, David, that your life has been one of easy, smooth sailing, problem-free, no difficulties? 
hardly. Any even casual reading of the life of David would, would show you that that was not the case. How is it then that he could say that my portion in life, that what God has given to me, well, it's fallen unto me in pleasant places. He can say it because you see behind that portion, behind his inheritance, stood the Lord. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. And if the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, well then, he'll maintain my lot. And I can declare, no matter how outward circumstances might find me, or what situation I find myself in, that I have a goodly heritage. The lines in that sense have fallen unto me in pleasant places. A very wonderful, uh, practical thing to be able to think about. Next, let's begin to think a bit more about the prophetic aspect of this particular psalm. And to do that, we're going to turn to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, and chapter 2. We'll find there where Peter... And the Spirit of God through him begins to now apply the messianic prophetic implications of Psalm 16. Remember this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the gospel that he declared to them. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, I, I know there are some Old Testament prophecies that speak of his death according to the scriptures. And I might know that there are some that speak of his resurrection. But where would I find in the Old Testament according to the scriptures that he was buried? There's a couple of places. I won't mention them now, but Psalm 16 is certainly one of those. Look with me if you want to follow in Acts chapter 2 to verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, or in Sheol, the place of departed spirits. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, 
neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And here's the New Testament application, quoting directly from Psalm 16. You know, in John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus stood upon this planet, and he declared, speaking of the Spirit of God, and when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because you believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And it's interesting, isn't it, to follow that line of thinking through Peter's message. You'll notice how he brings in sin in verse 23. You took him by wicked hands and crucified him. Righteousness, verse 24, God raised him up, loosed the pains of death. It was not possible that he should be holden of it. And judgment, in verse 35, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Now David, I'm sorry, Peter at this point, in his message at the day of Pentecost, quotes from three Old Testament passages of Scripture. They are the heart and the essence and the substance of his message. He quotes first from the prophet Joel, ending with these wonderful words in verse 21. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Words which Paul quotes also in Romans in chapter 10. Words that first came to me and were used to bring me to Christ when I was wondering how it was possible to be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't want to get too personal except to say some of you already know and have been praying, but God opened a door yesterday. A friend that I've been reacquainted with from childhood, she's younger than I am, but I grew up with her and her sister until I was just almost a teenager. Our family spent a lot of time together. Long story, which I won't go into today, except to saying I can't go visit her in the hospital where she is because of this coronavirus and all of the strictures that are placed upon us. She's been called, hospice has been called in. Her kidneys are failing. But God opened a door yesterday and allowed me to talk to her on the phone. Simply as I could, I gave her the gospel. And part of that gospel that I gave her included these words. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Please pray for her if you so feel led to do. And so he quotes first from the prophet Joel. Secondly, he quotes from Psalm 16. And third, from that, that very important psalm, Psalm 110. So let's think a little bit about what it is that Peter was saying here. 
First of all, he says that David wasn't just speaking of himself. David was speaking of the Christ or of the Messiah that was to come. How do we know? Well, one simple fact. You see, as Peter will say in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is grave is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. It's a very simple argument in that sense, isn't it? David couldn't have been speaking of himself because his body lie in a grave somewhere. And his body did see corruption. David, as a prophet, was speaking of the Christ. Number two, as a prophet, David foretold and declared that God would raise up the Messiah prior to his reign on his throne. Number three, David predicted that Christ's body would not decompose or be left in Sheol, the place of departed spirits. My flesh shall rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in hell or Sheol, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. This wasn't of David it was spoken of, but ultimately of Christ. Number four, God did raise him up. And what happened on the day of Pentecost was a result of the glorification of the Lord Jesus to God's right hand. Perhaps sometimes we don't think enough about not only the death of Christ and the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but the ascension of Christ and the present session of Christ seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's one of the most important concepts in that book of Hebrews. Where is Jesus Christ now? And he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. Looking back into Psalm 16 again and thinking of it as it most fully applies to the Lord Jesus, as David spoke of him and as Peter reminds us, David being a prophet spoke of him. There are four results of the complete devotion of the Lord to the Father's will. There's only one who ever stood on this planet who could say, I do always those things that please the Father. There's only one who ever stood on this planet that caused the heavens to tear open and a voice from heaven speak to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My delight is in him. And really, you know, when we think about it, isn't that another way to view salvation? Isn't salvation in essence this? that we take our delight in the one in whom God delights in, that we find our pleasure in the one who pleased the Father and in whom the Father is pleased. And so ultimately, when we think of him who could say, I have always set the Lord before me, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Four results of that complete devotion to God's will that ultimately led him to the cross of Calvary. Verse 9, my heart is glad, my glory rejoiceth, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. His was a shout of triumph over the grave, over death, over sin, over hell, over all those things, triumphant 
he arose. Number two, in verse nine, my flesh also shall rest in hope. His flesh dwelt securely in confidence and trust. And I want to tell you that that same trust and confidence in that sense that you and I have in the Lord Jesus, it imparts something wonderful. Trust in Christ imparts joy to the living, and it gives hope and rest to the dying. What message do you have to that person who's on a hospital bed or in hospice or dying wherever they may be? The world has no message to offer. The world has no hope to offer. But we do as believers in Christ that one day you'll be, well, like the Lord Jesus said to that dying thief on the cross, today will you be with me in paradise. What wonderful hope that is that extends beyond this life, beyond the grave, beyond death, hope. And for the believer as well, hope in the coming again of the Lord Jesus to receive us unto himself. The third thing we find here is that death would be followed by resurrection. You see that in verse 10. Now, this was David's hope. And so there is a sense in which part of verse 10 uh, does apply. David could say in verse 9, my flesh shall rest in hope. And ultimately, David would be raised. But as we've already seen, it goes beyond David's hope. It speaks of Messiah's incorruptibility. And what I mean by that is when his body went down into the grave, into that place of burial, his flesh could not corrupt because there was no sin in him. He was sinless, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And because there was not that element of sin tainting him, his body could go down into that place and not corrupt or deteriorate like a normal average human body would do. And then the fourth thing we see is that resurrection was followed by a glorious ascension, a path of life, if you will. I will show me the path of life. Leads me to ask this question. What path are you on? Or perhaps to think of it this way. Where will the path you're on ultimately take you? What is your destiny? If you don't know Christ as Savior, you don't have a great destiny before you. You're on a path that will lead you somewhere, but it's not where you want to end up. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him as Savior, and we can follow him, the triumphant one, the first fruits of the resurrection, on that path of life that will take us all the way to glory. And then finally, just in closing, uh, I want you to think about what we find here of Christ prophetically. In verse 8, we have his life. I have set the Lord always before me. In verse 9, we have his death. My flesh shall rest in hope. In verse 10, his resurrection. You will not leave my soul in Sheol. Or suffer thine holy one to see corruption. In verse 11, his ascension and his present session. I will show me the path of life. 
In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And for you and I who are believers in Christ, you see, we know where the pleasures really are. They're at God's right hand. I'd like to close by looking at the the black book, Hymns of Worship and Remembrance. And I want to just think of a couple of lines in this hymn that's found, number 207, Midst the Darkness. Very appropriate, I think, for where we are today. Listen to the first line. Midst the darkness, storm, and sorrow, one bright gleam I see. Well, I know the blessed morrow, Christ will come for me. Midst the light and peace and glory of the Father's home, Christ for me is waiting, watching, waiting till I come. And then listen to this line. He who in the hour of sorrow bore the curse alone, I who through the lonely desert trod where he had gone, he and I in that bright glory one deep joy shall share, mine to be forever with him, his that I am there. Isn't that a wonderful thought? His that I am there. Thank you for joining us today. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his death, his burial, his resurrection, all foretold before in Scripture. How this confirms to us again our faith. Our faith is not some shot in the dark. It's not just wishing that things were so. It is based on the objective truth and reality of the word of God and fulfilled prophecy of things that were said hundreds and thousands of years before that were literally fulfilled in just the way they were prophesied. How that confirms to us the reality of these things in our own hearts and our minds. We thank you for the practical import of this psalm. Because of the Lord, we can declare if we know him, the Lord is my portion we can then say we have a goodly heritage, no matter what our extenuating circumstances or outward situation may be. So bless your word to our hearts, we pray. And we thank you again for this opportunity and means of being able to do this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.